Meanwhile, I'll just read one passage to you. It's not a long passage. I shouldn't bother to turn it up. It's a very familiar one, one I've never preached from before, but I think it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Jesus said this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible invitation. We thank you sent your son into this world. And he uttered such kind words of invitation and love and mercy. And Father, we ask you tonight that you will speak these words right into our inner being, that we won't simply observe them, but we'll feel you speaking to us. Lord, I pray for some here tonight who don't yet know you, that they may hear your voice. I pray for many here who do know you and yet have found we do get anxious, we do get worn out, and we're not in that rest that you want us to be in. So come, Holy Spirit. Right now, rest upon us. Let us hear God speaking to us in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when I was preparing for this one-off Sunday, I felt God drew me to this passage. I was thinking it's a great kind of August Verse. It's a verse about having a rest, and uh, we associate this time of the year perhaps with getting away, having a break, and uh, at last putting things down. Some people live for uh, the holiday period. They wait for the holiday. They save up for the holiday because the holiday is everything, the time for a break. And this verse kind of t- sets itself maybe in that sort of framework of thought, and it's, uh, it's saying, come on, have a rest, and yet it's also... Uh, much more profound than that. You can't think of a, a more tender verse in the Bible. There are other verses that say, come to me and drink, and, and come and do this and come and that. But this must be, I think, the tenderest invitation you'll find in the Bible. Anyone who's weary, heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your soul. I am meek and lowly in heart. What a revelation of the heart of Jesus. What a revelation of his style, the way he relates to us, the invitation he gives us. It's a beautiful thing. If we can hear this in our hearts tonight, it's a life-changing word. It comes to us with power. It can transform things. Notice it doesn't say if anyone's impressive. It doesn't say if anyone's really squeaky clean. It says if anyone is weary, weary, heavy laden, it's not saying either, come to a course, you know, come to a 10-week course on how to be successful, you know, how to get your marriage together, uh, here's a, a lesson that you'll have. It's not that sort of thing. It's an invitation to a relationship. Come to me. Come and learn of me. Come and get yoked up to me. You'll find rest for your soul. It's a bit reminiscent, isn't it, of the 23rd Psalm, which is so popular. The Lord is my shepherd. I won't want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul, anoints my head. That awareness that runs right through the Bible, even from the Old Testament, the psalmist knew a God who restored his soul, who anointed his head afresh, who who lifted him up when he was worn out. And, And God speaks to us in these kind of terms. It's amazing that that's what God is like. I think for many who think, what would it be like to become a Christian? They might think, oh, I don't know if I've got time for that. It's heavy 
No, it's not heavy. It's, come on, I can help you. So it's such a gracious, kind invitation coming to us from the Bible. So first of all, I want to speak about this theme. It's actually probably an invitation to the religious when it was originally given. Because we might think, well, great, holiday season, where are you going? Well, we're going to Tenerife, we're going to Spain, I found a Greek island. You know, we, we kind of, let's go, let's rest, let's just get the suntan oil, let's get out there. Uh, but actually, in the setting when Jesus originally said it, we just need to see what it was like. It was probably speaking to the religious people of his day. People trying to please God. Jewish people who are trying to please God. You'll find these verses that shed light, I think. Matthew 23. The scribes, Jesus says, this is Jesus' view of the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees were religious leaders. And he said this. The scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That's how he challenged the religious leaders. He said, you just put burdens on people. You load them up. You don't lift a finger to help them. You just say, do this, do this. Again, a similar verse in Luke 11. Woe to you lawyers. It doesn't mean solicitors. That's uh, guys who handled the law in Jewish culture. Woe to you lawyers who weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. You religious leaders, you just put loads on people. You put pressure on people. And Jesus is saying, look, in contrast to them, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. It's not like that heavy one. It's not like that one that weighs you down. It's a different approach that I'm bringing to you. It's a different message. And so Jesus saw religion as such, as being a heavy burden. Jesus was anti-religion. He had his hardest time with the religious people. It's important for us to know that, especially perhaps if you're looking in. Maybe you're here with a friend. Maybe you've come to Brighton for the weekend, and uh, your friend said, well, come along tonight. We go to church. Mm, okay. But religion, how do you keep that up? That's hard, isn't it? And many people think that's what it's about. It's heavy-duty stuff. But Jesus said, no, 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 it's not like that. Jesus hated the religious. He was so kind but the religious were the ones he often spoke harshly to, especially the religious leaders. He confronted them, and they confronted him. He was so free in the way he preached. And the way he gathered, he began to gather around him a group of friends who in the end became, as it were, the beginnings of the church, which is now a global phenomenon. But it started with a handful of guys walking along with Jesus. And as they did on a Sabbath, for instance, they, they plucked the corn, it says, and they rubbed it in their hands and they ate it. And the Jewish people, the leaders said, what are you doing? You're working. What do you mean? Well, you're plucking corn and you're rubbing it together. That's working. That's two forms of work. And you're eating it without ceremonially washing your hands. Because if you've got to eat, you have to ceremonially wash. And there's a way of doing it. You take like the equivalent of an egg cup of water and pour it between each of the fingers. There's a way of doing it. You ceremonially wash. When we were in Israel last year and you go to the Wailing Wall, you can see guys over there with the ceremonial washing of the hands. And they just made it a list of rules and regulations. And, and Jesus was furious. In fact, at one point, they were saying to Jesus, would he heal on the Sabbath? He was in a place, there was a guy with a withered arm. And it says the Jews were beginning to realize his profound healing powers were often released. And he's looking at this guy. And it says Jesus looked around at them. 
And the strongest Greek word that's used in the whole of the New Testament comes in this context. Jesus was furious with them because of their hardness of heart because he was going to heal on the Sabbath because they said, well, that's working. You shouldn't do that. And so Jesus was saying, come on, what are you doing? What are you trying to communicate? You're supposed to be religious leaders. What are you doing? You're supposed to be representing God. And you're just burdening people down. Jesus then was really, really harsh in his condemnation of these people who are supposed to be representing God. And the very Sabbath itself was just supposed to be a time of rest. It was God's wonderful ordained purpose that, yeah, you labor for six days, on the seventh you rest. You have a complete break. But they turned some of the instructions into heavy rules and had added all sorts of different rules and regulations. But Sabbath was supposed to reflect what it says at the beginning of the Bible, that God created the heavens and the earth, and when he'd done so, he rested. Not that God was weary, not that God's going, God, that joke. No, it's just that God sort of celebrated. He ceased doing any more creation at that time and celebrated what he'd done. And, and, and we are created and told, no, just have that season in that regular rhythm of life when you just rest and celebrate. And something about that rest, actually, is at the heart of being a Christian. It says in Hebrews and chapter 4, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you think you found that in your experience? Would you say that's what happened to you when you became a Christian and you've been a Christian for some years? Would you feel, yeah, I found that Sabbath rest. It's affected me. I feel I've stopped that kind of striving and laboring and, and getting exhausted trying to please God and trying to keep it up. No, there's a Sabbath rest. It's interesting, the normal word for Sabbath in the New Testament is a Greek word, sabbaton. But this word in Hebrews 4, it's sapotismos. And it's saying there's a kind of celebration of the Sabbath. A celebration of rest. And that's what the Bible's inviting us into. A kind of, thank you, God, it's done. I can rest and they had changed it so much and said, no, on the Sabbath, you're not to do this. You mustn't go there. You mustn't lift that. You mustn't pluck corn. That's working. Rubbing it. No, that's kind of uh, working on the grain. <laughs> Foolishness. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're supposed to be finding a place of rest. And so Jesus challenged these people. He, uh, he really offended them by his harshness. And we pick up things like that. That can happen to us very early on. You can become a Christian. It can be the very first day you become a Christian. You may hear the gospel, and, and you may have been reaching to find God for yourself. You may have met a Christian, and then you see them. Think, There's something about her. She's kind of together. She seems peaceful. I wonder what it is. And they say, would you like to come to church? Okay, you come to church. And they're all a bit like it. They're kind of okay and at peace. And you think, wow, I wonder if I could... And you try and sort yourself out and kind of clean up your act. You think, oh, I can't. I can't stop swearing. I can't stop. I, I don't know. I feel bad. Among these people, I feel uncomfortable. And then one day you hear the gospel. And you hear what it says. No, no. Jesus says, come to me just as you are. Just as you are. And you can receive salvation. And you hear it. You think, what, what? I can just come. And the first time you hear that, it's the most wonderful news you've ever heard. 
You can be born again. You can know God for yourself. You can live forever. You can have God as a father. You think, yes, I'll have that, please. And maybe you come forward and you say, yes, please, I'd like to become a Christian. And, and you get prayed over. You think, yeah, I found God. I feel, I feel God. I know when I got saved, I'd never heard the gospel before. But when I prayed the prayer, I thought, oh, I can feel like God's here. Wow. But what can happen sometimes is straight away someone says, oh, have you become a Christian? Yeah, I have. Oh, good. I'd like to help you. Yeah, good. Well, let me tell you, um, you, you have to, you must read your Bible every day. Okay, got it. And you have to pray. You have to have a quiet time. I remember my sister saying to me, you have to have a quiet time. Thought, What's a quiet time? You have to do this, and I shouldn't wear that anymore. And I wouldn't uh, do your hair like that. And I wouldn't do this, and I wouldn't do that. And you must learn, you must do that. And you say, oh, okay, I think, I think. And that as well, yeah, okay. I feel wonderfully liberated by this <laughs> wonderful message I've learned. You think, did I get freed, or what happened to me then? And you get this mixture of, where are, how do you relate to God? As, am I accepted, or am I accepted if I do all these things. That's the challenge people live with. That's, been the, that's how the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day obscured the gospel. They said, well, yeah, of course God loves you, but you need to do this stuff. And we can be like that. We think, how are you getting on? Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to keep up my Christian life. You get people say, well, you, know, you have to pray, don't you? I try praying. Oh, God, I pray. You might say, I pray for my husband at work. Lord, bless my husband. Make him a witness today. I'm Lord, just let his testimony, give him opportunity to speak about you, Lord, and uh, bless him. And, um, or maybe I could go and see him at lunchtime. Maybe I could, uh, I'll surprise him. I'll go and meet him at lunchtime. Oh, that'd be fun. Uh, oh, yeah, I'll go. We can have a beer, we can have a chat. It'll be lovely, yeah. Oh, I was supposed to be praying. Oh, God. Um, uh, God, uh, uh, what was I praying? Oh, my, oh, yeah, what else? Oh, the missionaries. The missionaries. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Bless the missionaries, Lord. Uh, uh, let them be very uh, effective. Uh, bless the missionary supper on Friday. Yeah, the missionary supper. Oh, the missionary supper. I was supposed to do the quiche. Oh, yeah. I've, I haven't got the salad yet. I haven't made it. Oh, grief. Oh, gosh. I must get down there. Oh, God. Um, well, no, I could go. I could go. I could get. I could get the stuff. I could get the eggs. I get the bacon. And I'll see my husband. I would do that. That'd be such fun. We could meet. And, and, I'll get, and then, then, then Satan comes and says, Oh, mighty woman of intercession. Are you prevailing in the heavens? You think, prevailing in the heavens? Can't pray for toffee. My mind's all over the place. So you say, are you, how are you getting on as a Christian? Oh, I'm not very good at it. Because you think, well, how do you know? Well, you have to do this stuff. You begin to assess yourself on how good am I at doing the stuff? You think, well, I can't pray. You know, Good Christians are supposed to pray. I, sit, I try, but my brain goes everywhere. And, and I better get on with my Bible reading. Where was it? My Bible reading. Yeah, I know. I was 13 days behind, wasn't I, in the system? It was, uh, it was Leviticus, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember. And there was, yeah, I remember. Leviticus 4, that's right. He shall take the offering, remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys. 
you what on earth is going on? I don't understand a word of it. She, Satan says, are you getting a lot out of it? He says, no, I don't understand a word. I'll have to ask John Hosier what Leviticus is all about. I think, what? I you know, so you find, hey, I'm, I'm no good at this. And in that moment, you, you forget what it is to know God. And you think it's doing these religious things. And it all gets a bit heavy. Do I have to do this? I have to do that. And it's like, will I be acceptable if I do these things? What are the things I have to do to keep this up? That's the challenge. That's, the, that's what Jesus was saying to these. You, you load heavy burdens on people. That's what he said to the religious leaders. You don't lift a finger to help them. You're not helping people. You're not shepherds. You're loading them up with responsibility. And that can hit people. That can shape. And if you've been raised in a Christian home, that can actually affect the culture. I was converted out of a completely non-Christian background. My, my wife was part of a very widespread Christian family. Every aunt, uncle, everything I met was a Christian. You know, there's like all Christians everywhere. And I remember Wendy's mother came and lived with us towards the end of her life, um, lived in Hove, joined the church here. And uh, she was in her 70s. And uh, she told me about how her father had made her feel... Oh, you have to do these. I've always felt kind of guilty as a Christian. And that can be the culture in Christian homes. Have you done it? Are you keeping it? What are you doing? And it's like, oh, it's heavy. It just gets more and more pressure. That's the way it comes across. You just get more and more pressured. And also, you can kind of look for success. Like you can impose guilt it's like you can say to your kids, maybe you've had some of this, you know, you could get a really good degree, you just make sure. And sometimes the ambition of the parent is, get a good degree, because actually, I will feel fulfillment on what you do. And I can face the neighbours, and I can face the people at church, oh yeah, she got 2-1. And, and, and it's like, it just helps me, because they're still struggling with, how do I feel accepted? And it's in the culture of a religious household that you're all trying to feel better by accomplishing something. And even as a young Christian, you can pick up that sense of, oh, you've got to do it. You've got to keep up with the thing. And it can be very heavy. It can be very, very difficult. Jesus said to her, you remember, he went to a home, which he often used to go to, and, and there's Martha, this girl. And he said to Martha, 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 you are anxious about many things. You like that? Anxious about many things. And there come times in life that can make you anxious about many things. Now Jesus is saying to us, and this works in the 21st century, boy, there are things to get anxious about. And Jesus is saying, come to me, I'll give you rest. I'm meek and lowly, you'll find rest for your soul. He's making an amazing offer. He's making such a kind offer. He wants us freed from being driven by anxiety, driven to accomplish, driven to keep God happy, if you can. See, no, that's not the way it is. So I believe Jesus was essentially speaking to the Jewish people who, when they tried to please God, were meeting Pharisees, Sadducees, saying, this is how you do it. It's heavy time. Jesus came with a radical new approach. But he was also speaking to the non-religious and he's still got a message for us today. Those who've never thought, I'm trying to please God. 
but you're still trying to find peace. You found your other God. Maybe not the God of the Bible, but you'll be worshipping something. There's something you hope will meet that need inside you. I was just reading recently about Georges Simenon, who, who wrote the Maigret stories, and uh, he wrote 191 books, made a fortune, and he built a fantastic house in Switzerland. It's built it high up above Lausanne. He was viewing the Italian Alps one side, looking down at uh, Lake Geneva, and he said this, I've tried to build a kind of perfection here. Massive place, had seven bathrooms, seven televisions, seven fridges, laundry with three washing machines, four or five paintings in every sitting room, a study with 11 paintings by the masters. He said he had double glazing that if 50 kids were playing outside, he wouldn't be able to hear it through the window. He's made money and he'd made what he was looking for. He was looking for a kind of perfection. But then he said this, I have only one ambition left, to be completely at peace with myself. I doubt I shall ever manage it. I don't think it's possible for anyone. It's not a question of money, for that kind of happiness must come from within yourself. I don't know any man, however successful, who's completely happy. So here's a guy who had the opportunity. You see, many of us think, if only I had the opportunity. If only I could get some. I could perhaps do some things. And this guy had it. He, he had what he wanted. And he had the capacity to think creatively. A house in the Swiss Alps. and Wow, man. Lake Geneva, double glazing, man. But he's saying, I was looking for perfection, but it's not there. It's not there. In the Bible, Jesus met people like that. He met a guy called Zacchaeus. As children in Sunday school, sometimes they sing, Zacchaeus was a very little man. And uh, in the Bible, that becomes clear uh, that he was. He was a tax collector. That's very different to a modern tax collector. In the Bible, the tax collectors were a kind of bridge between the Romans and the Jews. And they were themselves Jews. And the Romans had conquered Israel. They were ruling fiercely. They were frightening, overpowering. And they took over Israel and they said, we want taxes from you. And you had to pay taxes. But the way they did that was they asked people there, be tax collectors, and some would volunteer. Although they themselves were Jews, they would just step out of their Jewishness and serve the Romans. And they were hated for it. That's why it talks about tax collectors and sinners. Because these were the guys that people hated. They were religiously unclean because they'd stepped out of Jewish uh, rules and regulations by getting identified with the Romans and they then came to their own people and said, come on, give us the tax, give us the tax. They, they represented Rome. They got Rome's authority behind them. They oppressed their own people and took the taxes and then put some in their pocket and gave to the Romans. So they got rich being the middleman. They took, they didn't give it all to the Romans. The Romans knew they did that, but they let that happen so while they'd get the job done. And these guys got very rich and Zacchaeus would have been a very rich man, but a very lonely man, because he would have been hated. And he went after things rather than people. He didn't think he'd find pleasure in friendship. He lost friends. He hadn't got any friends. That's why you see about him in the Bible. It says Jesus is coming down the street, crowds are all around him, and this guy's small, so he climbs a tree. 
No one's saying, oh, you're small, come through, because they hate his guts. No one's helping him. No one's saying, can we lift you? He has to climb the tree. And as Jesus walks through, sees him. Zacchaeus, come on, I want to speak to you. And they're like, what? I want to speak to a guy like that. His religious were offended. What's he want to speak to a guy like that for? And he goes into his home, and we, you know, the door kind of closes over it. You're not allowed to read the story. You don't know what was said. But Jesus must have spoken to him in a phenomenal way. Come to me, I'll give you rest. He must have said something because it says at the end of the time, Zacchaeus said, I'll give back what I've stolen. I'll give to the poor. I'll give it away. And Jesus doesn't say, no, that's very clever. He says, salvation has come to this house. Here's a guy who's worshipping another God. The Bible calls the love of money like worship of a God called Mammon. It's like he's a God. He makes requirements of you. You have to lose your friends to serve me. You have to put this first. You have to care about it. He's a very, very frightening God. He makes demands of you. No, don't do that. Don't do that. You could do that. But you might hurt. doesn't matter if you hurt them. Take it. It makes demands. But Jesus came into his home and smashed the power of that God and freed Zacchaeus. So Jesus can say it to people who are not religious but who have found an alternative God. Or like the woman at the well. It says in John's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus came across a Samaritan woman. And he's talking to her. He's beginning to witness to her. He says, if you want the water, I could give you living water. He's beginning to talk to her about how he's willing to meet her need. And then she begins to give some religious mumbo-jumbo to cut across. And Jesus speaks right through it. And he says to her, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Whoa. Here's a woman who's looking for fulfillment in a guy. Wow, I've met the guy. She must have been quite a stunner, mustn't she? Get five guys to marry her. I mean, as the years slip by, five guys. She's got to be pretty remarkable. The last one, you've had five husbands. The last one's where he's living with you. Couldn't quite get him to marry her, but she, she tried this one. Wow, he's Mr. Right. He's the one. I'm going to, oh, let's get married. And then, actually, he doesn't, he doesn't meet all my needs. He looks quite nice. Perhaps he will. I'll try him. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. After a while. I remember reading the story of Elizabeth Taylor once. Some years ago, actually. I think she had six, seven husbands. She told her story. What she was looking for. What she was looking for. They're looking for... Perhaps this guy. You can go into marriage like that, and our evening congregations, the younger congregation, sometimes you can have that kind of in your mind, I found Mr. Right. Oh, he'll meet all my needs. He won't. (laughs) Only Jesus can do that. Only the God who created you. You must not put that, you must not impose that on your prospective husband, your prospective wife, say, oh, gonna, I can't wait, this be so wonderful. Well, I hope it is wonderful, but he won't meet every need. You'll find times you think, oh, this is disappointing. That's right, he's human like you. And so if you're trying to find something in a person or in money, you'll find, ah, oh, it's not good, I'm getting scared, what's going wrong? He may be getting anxious. Things aren't going so right. I thought he was a wonderful, but being married to him is another deal. 
What's going on? It's because you were hoping he would give you what you needed. Only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. You can make a big mistake by having far too much expectation from a person or from money. As this man said, I was looking for perfection, but hmm, didn't find it. And you can look for that in a relationship, thinking relationships will meet the need. But no, they don't. So Jesus is saying to all of us, to be honest, if I, come to me, all you that are weary and exhausted. You get exhausted trying to be religious. Well, some people miss the point. They think, I'll follow Jesus, I'll work hard at it, perhaps I'll become Christian. No, that isn't how it works. You don't, you don't follow him to become a Christian. You don't say, I'll try and be like Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You have to do what it says in the Bible. You have to come to him and he gives you. I will give you rest. Salvation is a gift of God. The Bible is very clear about it. It's something that God gives us. He mercifully gives to us freely. In fact, in this passage, we've got two things. Let's look at them. The first one is, if you like, a crisis followed by a process. All right? First, the crisis. I will give you rest. How does he give rest to people who've got troubled conscience? Well, he does it by taking our guilt away. And that's what all the, the Old Testament sacrificial system was about. It was about, look, I know you're sinners. God said, I know you're sinners, but if you will, from time to time, bring a lamb and, and lay your hands on the offering, I will regard the offering as being like you, and then you kill the lamb and you offer it up, and, and I will forgive you. And there were days in their program, Day of Atonement, cleansing, Passover. The whole of their culture was built around this, that I will provide forgiveness if you bring sacrifices. And so there's pages and pages of it. But it's all preparing to the ultimate one. And so in the New Testament, it says, look, all that offering again and again was not actually taking away sin because they had to keep on doing it. But now the ultimate sacrifice has come. The ultimate shepherd. The one who actually said, I laid down my life for the sheep. And no, no Old Testament lamb consciously gave up its life. They were just taken and killed. This one intelligently, knowingly what he was doing, said, I give my life. I, I didn't come to be served, Jesus said. I came to serve and lay down my life. A ransom. I pay the ransom. I set you free. You, we're like prisoners of our sin. We're, we can't get free. And Jesus said, I'll pay the ransom. You will. Yeah, I'll pay the ransom. It'll need someone perfect. I've come. Perfect. He was holy, separate. The Bible says he was innocent. Jesus stood up one day and says, which of you finds fault with me? No one shouted. The man's innocent. He said, the devil's coming. He's got nothing on me. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Jesus was innocent, but on the cross, the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There came this extraordinary thing that this one who knew no sin, he'd never experienced sin, he had no appetite for sin. He was innocent and pure and holy. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. All our sin 
was accredited to him. And it was like when he died on the cross, it was as though Jesus was the biggest sinner that ever walked the planet. God made him to be sin. He was the personification of evil. God did that to his own son. He said in the Old Testament he would. In Isaiah 53, he said he'll be smitten of God. God would deal this. God would make a wonderful way of escape for those who took it. And he'd do it by sending his own son and judging him. And Jesus said, I'll stand in their place. And, and all our sin was accredited to his account. And he was cursed. He was cursed. That's what it told us in the Old Testament. When they killed people, they often hung them up on a tree afterwards because they'd done their worst to them. they killed them, but they said, no, let God curse them as well. And Jesus bore our curse. He cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment of God stepping back. And Jesus, who'd always known the fellowship of the Father every day, every moment, knew as he drew nearer and nearer to Calvary, the withdrawing of the presence of God. So he walked alone into that last stage. And on the cross, no comfort, no sense of the nearness of God. All our sin on him. But then it says God made him to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That his perfect spotless righteousness is accredited to my account. That that perfect life that Jesus lived, never sinning, always pure, always obedient, always holy. The life Jesus lived is accredited to me as though I lived it. It's wonderful. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is my righteousness, and it's always the same. He never changes. In fact, it says in Hebrews that all these Old Testament priests continually killed lambs and slaughtered in order to present these lambs, and they never sat down. It says, because they never finished doing this. But Jesus, when he'd done it, sat down because by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, by one offering, has perfected us for all time. I've been perfected for all time. Jesus Christ is my righteousness, and he's going to be the same tomorrow morning when I wake up. When I put my head on the pillow this evening, he's my righteousness. All conscience. See, it says he cleanses your conscience. It's not just an external thing. He's cleansed my conscience. God has dealt with us so that, hey, talk about peace. I'll give you rest. Well, yes, you do get rest. But what about if you didn't do your quiet time? Well, actually, he's my righteousness. But did you pray very long? Well, I pray, I do pray. Actually, I rather like praying. But I'm not doing it to kind of impress God because Jesus has impressed God for me. I've found someone who's impressed God on my behalf. And he's made me righteous. Hallelujah. Amen? You enjoying this? For yourself, in your daily life, he's my righteousness. We come to him. We find rest. It says he cancels all, on the cross all the handwriting that was against us. The Bible plainly teaches that we will give account for every idle word. There's a lot of handwriting up there. Oh my, you said that. It's all going there. It's a lot of handwriting, a lot of records 
Francis Schaeffer said, it's as though you've got a recording hanging around your neck, a recording machine, and every statement, every time you judge, every time you say, they shouldn't do that kind of thing, and you do it. It says you'll be judged by your own words. Because we make all kinds of moral judgments about people. Even without the Ten Commandments, we judge. But actually, hmm, we do it. We give account for every idle word, the Bible says. But when Jesus died on the cross, all the handwriting that was against us was nailed to his cross. And he disarmed the principalities and the powers that accuse us. You sinner, you sinner. They've got nothing more to say because he's washed it all away. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Someone said, when I saw that verse, I underlined it so much, it went right through to the maps. <laughs> there is no condemnation. You'll find rest for your soul. All the guilt's gone. All the condemnation's gone. You found rest for your soul. It's a crisis. It starts with a crisis. It starts with this awareness that God has done all it's needful. It's a done deal. Now, of course, the crisis that they found in the early church, that was when the gospel came, it was such good news. Gospel means good news. It's very good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's done. It's great news. And what happened was that the, the formerly Jewish Christians, they said to these formerly pagan Christians, well, it's great that you've, you've taken on board our Messiah. We were waiting for the Messiah for decades, for centuries. We knew he would come one day. And you didn't know anything about him, but you've accepted him and you, you've received salvation. This is superb. Our prophet said this would happen. Our prophet said all the nations will come to our God. You're worshipping the God of Israel. This is wonderful. Oh, yeah, great, isn't it? Yeah, but now you have um, some things you just need to know. We've known him for centuries. Uh, you need to be circumcised. You must keep the Sabbath. Uh, don't forget the feast days, and you mustn't eat that kind of food. We've never ate that. And so what they did, they kind of got the thing confused. People have come into new life, and, the, and, and so there came this challenge. Would the gospel stay free? And that's one of the big battles in Paul's life. In the book of Galatians, he's writing to them because he planted a church in Galatia. It says they got saved. They got filled with the Spirit. Miracles were happening. Wow, great church. And then the, the Jewish Christians came in behind and said, ah, wait a minute, you need to do these things as well. And Paul is furious. He wrote his letter. He said, who's bewitched you? Very strong word he used. They're saying you must keep the law. He's calling it bewitching. That's how he viewed it. You're obscuring the gospel. You're falling away from grace. He said, you who will be justified by law are falling away from grace. I heard that phrase used the other day. It meant someone was not coming to church anymore. They said, oh, someone, someone yeah, I think he's fallen from grace. What they mean was they stopped going to church. That's not the way the Bible uses it. The way the Bible uses it is this. If you try and add to grace these laws, you fall from grace. You're obscuring the gospel. You're getting confused. It's like saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for your gift of righteousness. But just to make sure, I better try doing this stuff as well. Because really, I'm not sure the cross does it. I'm not sure that your death, resurrection, triumph is enough for me. It's foolishness. He's perfected for all time. Those who believe. 
So we don't have to pick up that load. It became such a discussion thing in the New Testament. You read the book of Acts, you'll find in Acts chapter 15, when they came together, they're saying, do they have, do we have to tell them to keep the law or not? They have a big discussion, what's called the Council of Jerusalem. And Peter says this, Simon Peter says in Acts 15, 10, why do you put God to the test? By putting on the neck, there's that expression again, putting on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers or we have been able to bear. That old legalistic thing, it was so heavy. Are you saying to these newly born people, they've got to do that as well? He said, why are you tempting God? God didn't say that. Break this thing. And so the council of Jerusalem said, that's it. Let's make it known. You're free. Hallelujah. A crisis, Jesus sets us free. You find rest for your soul. There's a rest for the people of God that sets you free. But then there's also a process, all right? A rest and a process. He said, Jesus said, come to me. Come and take what I'm giving. Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. Maybe you didn't understand. You thought Christianity was doing a lot of religious stuff. No, it's receiving a gift of salvation. It's understanding Jesus died in your place so you can live forever. All your sins blotted out. Living forever in the peace of God, knowing for certain that God will receive you when you die, that you will live forever, knowing it. It's the end of all turmoil and inner battles. If you don't know it, you can know that tonight. It's free, it's a gift. You just say, well, I'll keep working at it. No, no, it's a gift. And even when we say, come on, the Alpha course, we're just trying to help you see it's a gift. It's not something you have to kind of work your way at. It's a gift. The gift. But then there's the process. Now take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your soul. For my burden, my yoke is easy. My burden's light. You're going to find a different kind of a yoke. But you need to learn of me. Now learn of me. That's what a disciple is. That's what the word disciple means. It means a learner. Someone who is learning. And Jesus is the, ma- the master rabbi. He's the great teacher. He says, now learn from me. Okay, Jesus. I thank you. Cleansing me. Making me new. Now I want to learn from you. Okay, learn from him. You've got to learn some things. And so we have in the New Testament, we've got the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. And Jesus gives these, these wonderful sayings at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, 7, the end of chapter 7, he says this, He who hears these words of mine and does them, in other words, you've learned from me, you've learned from me, he who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on a rock. He said, he who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a man who builds his house on sand. And when the storms come, the guy built on sand, he didn't learn of me. He didn't actually find rest for his soul. He's still vulnerable. Watch how it comes storm. It comes a storm. No, no. If you do what he's saying, no, no, actually, storms come and go. And they do. The Christian life is not storm free. We're experiencing that at the moment. Sale. No, no, no. This, no can we buy? Or oh, it's changed. Oh, it's not exactly easy. But when the storms come and you're built on the rock, he that hears these sayings of mine 
Learn of me. We've got to learn from Jesus, who is meek and lowly of heart. And Jesus says this, the meek shall inherit the earth. Not the, not the, the forceful. I'm meek and lowly. And so there's beatitudes. You get the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. No, it's about the meek and the lonely. And, the, and it's, it's God saying there's a different kind of a way. And so you've got to unlearn some stuff. Whether you come from a religious background or a non-religious background, you've got to learn some stuff, which also implies you've got to unlearn some stuff. You don't just add it. You don't say, oh, my mum always said this. We've always thought that. Oh, yeah, I'll do this as well. No, no, the stuff you have to put out of the way. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, you get Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. What you have learned, no, I'm saying to you. So here's some examples from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Whoa. I am meek and lowly. You're going to have to learn a new lifestyle. It's a new kind of way of living. Get yoked to me. You've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those. Well, even your boss always mocks you because you're a Christian. Yet pray for those who despitefully use you. Love your enemies. Right into this life. Jesus gave us these beautiful ways. And he's meek and lowly of heart. It's not an outside thing he's put on. It's not like Uriah Heap, you know, ever so humble. He's from that, I'm, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Jesus is meek and lowly of heart. We read of him in Philippians 2. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form, a human form. And then he humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. He, he could have, he was God. He's co-equal with God. He's face-to-face equal with God. But he didn't say, oh, no, I insist. I'm, I'm God. No, no, he humbled himself. Now, we're told in the Bible that when Adam and Eve were tempted, this is what they were tempted. You can be as God. If you eat this, you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can, make, you can call what's good and what's evil. You, you can be independent. You can be as God. You choose. Ah, oh, he's wrong. I disagree. I think my opinion, my humble opinion. See, you can be as God. You make the judgments. You make all the calls. You have your opinion. You stand up for yourself. Jesus, who was in the form of God, didn't count equality to be grasped. Adam and Eve said, yeah, we'd like that. Jesus, no, 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 he humbled himself. And he's introducing a new race on planet Earth who are yoked to him being meek and lowly of heart. It's a race that's different. And it should look different in the workplace and in the family and in the roads. When people cut you off or you make a mistake and they shout at you, shout back. No, no, God's doing something in us. He's doing something in us. He's teaching us from his heart. Do nothing, it says in Philippians 2, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard others as more important than yourselves. Don't look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. That's what Jesus was like. Learn of me. Jesus is saying, learn of me. Get close to me. I'll give you rest, and I want you to get yoked to me. Learn my way. Jesus 
at one point was talking to this woman we mentioned in Samaria, in Samaria and the disciples had been to the shops, came back with some food. So have you had anything to eat, Jesus? He said, I've got food to eat you don't know anything about. This is my meat to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. I've got meat. I've got supernatural food. It nourishes me. Doing the Father's will nourishes me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. I've got peace to spare. I'm not anxious. I'm not trying to plan out an alternative. I'm not trying to make my way. It gives you peace. He wants to share that with us. He wants it to characterize our relationships. He doesn't want us striving, straining, building tensions. Learn of him. How did it work for Paul? Let me give you two illustrations, then we finished. At one point, Paul is in a situation, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I, I, I was persecuted. That's my understanding of it. He said, I had a thorn in the flesh. He had hostility, he had bad things happen to him. He was persecuted. He would be followed from town to town. People coming. He'd even start a church. They'd come in and he'd be stoned. And they'd pursue after him. He kept on being pursued. And he says three times, he said, oh God, get them off my back. Get me out of this. He searched. He cried out to God. Please release me from this. He wasn't like a stoic saying, I have no problems. No, he's having problems. He's saying, God, help me. I need God to save me. Christians find God saves them. All the time. We have a saviour, a friend, who acts for us. It's not that we have to somehow put on the stiff upper lip, say, no, I can manage this. No, we often can't manage it. So we cried to God like Paul did. And then he said, God spoke to him. He said, the Lord said to me, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected in weakness. He said to me, because while I'm yoked to him, you see, Paul could say, no, so I was in difficulty, I cried, and so he spoke to me, because I'm yoked to Jesus. And so then he says this, I am well content. That's a lovely modern phrase, isn't it? I'm well content, right? You well, oh yeah, I'm well content. I'm well content with what? Weaknesses. This is what I think the thorn in the flesh was, these people after him. I'm well content then. With weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. I found I can get yoked to him. And then again in Philippians 4, he says this, I've learned, right, learn of me. Dear friends, are you learning of Jesus? It's not just trying to be good and keep the rules. It's learning. Paul, that's his testament. I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. And this is this, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We tend to think of a verse like that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like sort of charismatic platforms. Well, Paul is talking about, yeah, I can handle when it's difficult, financial. Aren't you worried? Haven't you not read? Have you heard about what's happening? The banks are going down the pan. America's gone. What's happened to Italy, Greece, Spain? Oh, what's going to happen? I've learned, Paul says, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret. Learn of me. That's the phrase he uses. I've learned the secret of, yeah, 
sometimes being hungry. I said, I've learned the secret of, press, of being in prosperity, having an abundance. I've learned the secret of having an abundance. You think, gosh, you went on a big holiday. Didn't you feel a bit guilty about that? You stayed at a what hotel? Five-star hotel. Supposed to be a Christian, aren't you? Oh, yeah, I do feel a bit ashamed. No, 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 no. I found the secret. I can, I can find, yeah, pressure. Or I can find prosperity. Paul says, I'm well content. I've learned. You that are laboring, you can get rest. Learn of me. Jesus will teach you how to live. He'll teach you not have to your own agenda and be anxious if you're not accomplishing it and my kid isn't doing as well and I feel that would do good with me. No, 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 come on. Find rest. Rest for your soul. You're never going to run this long race until you find rest for your soul. You found rest for his soul. I can do all things through Christ. Let me ask you then as I close. Are you weary and heavy laden? Come to him. Well, I can't keep it up. Well, it's for people like you. Have rest. Have a gift of righteousness. Understand it. Don't drift from it. Sometimes we say, well, I know that, but I kind of drift from it. Come back to it tonight. Say, Lord, I just come back to you. Thank you for the gift of righteousness. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've, you think, well, you guys, I come to this church. You sing songs. How do you know? No, it's free. You can have it. You can just come and have it. We'd love to help you. We really would love to help you. We'd love to connect with you. That's why we call this word connect. Okay, you've got these things in front of you. Hands reach away. Come on, just, just get your name down there. Say, God, can somebody help me? Yeah, we can help you. We can lead you to Jesus. We can show you how he can meet every need of yours. If you're trying to find help in some other God, some other way, Jesus is offering, I will give you rest. I'm meek and lowly of heart. You'll find rest. You can go on holiday. I've heard people say it. We've only just got back from holiday. I'm whacked again already. Because, I mean, it's fun. Holidays are fun. But they won't do this for you. Won't do this. Only Jesus can do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you. He was so amazing. He came to do such wonderful things. We thank you, Jesus, that you bore our guilt in your body on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, you suffered in our place. Maybe you just want to speak to Jesus tonight. Maybe as our guest tonight, we're so glad you're here. You just want to say, Lord, would you help me? You find people shouted out to Jesus in the crowd and sometimes the disciples said, no, no, go away. Jesus never said, go away. He always let people find him, touch him, get to him. Just say, Lord, help, help me. Do you know me? Yes, he does. He says he'll never turn anyone away. Why don't you tonight say, Lord, I think maybe I've been trying to follow Jesus in order to save myself. I've never, I've never consciously received the gift that brings all that striving to an end. Why don't you do that right now? We'll be worshipping now. We'll be breaking bread shortly. It's time to respond to Jesus. and Even in the worship, be drawing near to him. Father, I pray, bless us.
as we bring our love and worship to you. Bless us as we break bread later. Lord, let your presence be in this place. We give you praise, Jesus. We thank you so much for offering us rest. If any of you here Christians, you just know you get so anxious. You get so under pressure. You get so stressed out. Now come on. Come to him. Learn from him. He's meek and lowly of heart. He'll give you rest. Fellowship with him. Draw from his love. Thank you, Jesus.